You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. This morning we want to continue looking at passages having to do with marriage and singleness. The series is called uh, Marriage and Singleness and Service. The sermon this morning is uh, the fourth sermon. This is, so if things weren't awkward enough, the sermon this morning is on sex. Uh, There are a number of uh, passages that uh, teach us a Christian view of physical intimacy, and we need to look at those passages, and so that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Um, I, uh, you know, I I just thought, I interviewed my kids, I thought about, you know, how do you, how do you broach this subject when you have all these children that are with us during the worship service? That's uh, very important to us as a church that our children would actually be worshiping with us, uh, watching the church worship, learning uh, how to be a part of uh, not just a body, but a worshiping body. So it's very important that our kids are here. That's deliberate, as you, most of you know. But this is one of those passages where I just, I feel like I may be stepping on the toes of parents. I I have to admit, I don't have tons of shame in that there are parts of Scripture that as we read Scripture to our children, we just got to read right through it. And maybe you just hold your breath and you just just read right through it. It's right there for us. Um, So I I, I don't want to offend parents. You need to know that I'm not ashamed of using the word sex. Scripture uses it. In fact, uh, a few more graphic words. Um, but I, I have just a little bit of advice for you parents. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, you'll see in most translations um, the word sex or sexual there. But in the Greek, the word that Paul uses is actually touch. Touch. And so maybe, maybe that's how I help you little theologians uh, in terms of answering, you know, what is, what, what does the Bible mean by sex? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's male and female touching one another in a private, intimate way. And parents, maybe you think, I, I just I made things worse. And that, that may be the case. Um, However, it's, it's here before us, and we have to talk about this issue of uh, human beings coming together in a, in a physical, intimate way. Now, parents, you can thank me for this. Here's the picture that I want the little theologians to draw. It was like really uncomfortable now. Um, by the way, I'm sunburned. I'm not blushing. Okay, just, okay this is not a blushing, sir. I'm just, I'm Welsh. This is what happens. Um, the summer, not blushing. Little theologians, here's what I want you to draw because Paul, Paul reminds us that in, in our profession of faith as Christians, as a part of the church, we're actually part of the body of Jesus. Um, he calls us members of that body. Um, instruments, components, ingredients, pieces. And so, uh, little theologians, please draw a very complex something with all kinds of tiny little parts that are working together and highlight one part because that would be you. You are a member of the body of Jesus Christ. There are many members. And so I don't know if it's in a different color or if there's a big arrow. Complex something and highlight that you are one member of the body of Jesus. How about you draw that? That way moms and dads aren't uncomfortable. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, is where we'll look, and we'll actually go all the way through 1 Corinthians 7, 5. So 1 Corinthians 6, 11 is where we will begin. 
Uh, Let me uh, pray for us first, and then we'll read together. Our Father, we do love your word. We love, Father, that, that you speak with such authority. We love, Father, that uh, you are not afraid to go into places that we have already called secrets. You go there. You, you don't care about what signs we put up to keep you out. You go there and you tell us who we are. Father, we thank you for this passage. Would you help me as a minister that doesn't belong to myself, doesn't belong to uh, even uh, the elders or the deacons here, a minister that belongs to Jesus Christ, that I might be an ambassador of his message in all of Scripture. By your Spirit, help me to do that, God. To the glory of your Son, amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 11, we'll, we'll go right into chapter 7 as well. 1 Corinthians six eleven. listen to God's word. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Remember, this is the word of our Lord. Well, it's a, uh, it's a difficult uh, passage. I wonder if you uh, cringed a bit even as we, as we read it. There's a sense in which we can ask, uh, rather honestly, why consider such a topic as this? And of course, the easy answer is that it's in Scripture. It's in Scripture. And, And we have to address what Scripture addresses. We have to study all of God's Word, 
all of God's word is divinely inspired and authoritative for us. And so that, in a way, is a bit of an easy answer. But another answer for why deal with this subject is because everyone on earth is dealing with this subject. The topic of physical intimacy is everywhere, isn't it? I think those of you who are older uh, might remember a time where physical intimacy was not as much in your face as it is now. But I hope that all of us would recognize that it is very much in your face. It's everywhere. It's in our music. It's, uh, it's gratuitously on the TV screen in front of us. Uh, adultery is something that we, we're just in many ways culturally desensitized to. We see it. We almost expect to see it on TV and drama. Um, we can look at characters and, and just imagine this is the, this is the adulterous character. Uh, just imagine uh, music. You know, in poetry, uh, poetry about or lyrics about um, male-female relationships, of course, are all over poetry, and of course they are in music today. Uh, but the degree of physical intimacy and the raciness within the music that we just hear walking through a store, um, it would have been shocking to people even as little as 50 years ago. So we have to address the subject in the sense that the Bible tells us to, but we also have to address the subject because the subject has already been addressed. It's already out there. The world around us is interpreting male-female, male-male, female-female relationships, and the world is not simply interpreting, the world is actually preaching to us. Maybe you don't think about that much. We are in a world that is filled with preaching. There's a preaching ministry all around us. Provocative messages, evangelistic messages. The world desires to establish us in its pattern, and so the world preaches to us. And we address the subject because God has given us the authority to address the subject. Here in God's Word, God has an opinion on matters of physical affection. God has an opinion about it. And so as we look at Scripture, what we discern is that Jesus purchased a bride for Himself, and He has opinions about this bride. She belongs to Him. And as a church, we must proclaim the message of what glorifying sexual relationships actually look like. We ought to be able to recognize them. And we also ought to be able to look out into the world, hear an evangelistic message about its own ethic on sexual relations, and we ought to be able to say that the world is playing with a gun. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. God has opinions about how we are to conduct ourselves in our physical relationships with others. So the theme of this passage is that Jesus has purchased a bride, and because he's purchased her, she actually belongs to him. He has opinions about her sexuality. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on that theme by describing two things. I think that when Paul talks about this subject, we almost, you know, when you whistle high pitch to a dog and they cock their head, there's something about this passage when you read it, different subjects get into the passage that kind of make you cock your head and go, what's, what's Paul talking about here? It seems as though he started out talking uh, about physical intimacy, but then he offers these strange principles 
And I want, to, I want to address these principles. I think there's three of them. Remember, he's talking about physical intimacy, and the three principles are the principle of resurrection, the principle of one flesh, and the principle of indwelling spirit. Just think about that for a moment. What does the resurrection have to do with physical intimacy? Uh, one, the principle of one flesh from Genesis 2.24, that actually makes a bit more sense. I, I can kind of get that if we're talking about physical intimacy, um, two uh, male and female coming together in one flesh, that, that makes sense. But what about the principle of the indwelling spirit? How does that enter into this discussion about close physical intimacy? So I just want to talk about those three principles, and I think that uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 is the application. I'm going to use that as the application of the sermon. It's those five verses, the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So first of all, these principles, and again, these are things that come to Paul's mind by the Holy Spirit that might not automatically come to our mind. The first is the, is the principle of the resurrection. Look with me, if you would, at, at 1 Corinthians 6, 11. It's, a, it's Christianity 101. And such uh, were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what Paul's talking about is he's talking about benefits of redemption. As a Christian, there are benefits that you have by being a Christian. And normally we talk about those benefits as justification, sanctification, adoption. But these are benefits of the Christian life. Christian, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you have been washed, sanctified, justified. But then skip down to verse 14. And he talks about another benefit of redemption. And that is your resurrection. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This is a description about you, Christian. You were washed, you were sanctified, or being sanctified, you were justified, and you will one day raise up, ascend into heaven, and dwell with God, sitting at table with Jesus in the body. In the bo so, this is, this is where it gets interesting. When Paul thinks about how to treat the body well, it's like he just instinctively, of course it's the Holy Spirit, he goes to the resurrection if I want to know what my body is meant for, he goes to that glorified body. That's how I know what the body is meant for. And here's how Paul describes, it, describes this to us. I sometimes wonder if the Corinthians were just really hard-headed and they needed to have like mottos of their own era in order to understand what Paul is teaching them. Um, everyone, everyone's heard early bird gets the worm, right? Early bird gets the worm, right? It's not, it's not in Scripture. But... You know, I think we're okay with the early bird gets the worm. That makes sense. I think you probably, you shouldn't sleep till 2 p.m. That seems like that would be a bad thing to do. Uh, you should get up. You should get busy. Um, a penny saved is a penny earned, right? Again, not in Scripture. Pretty good idea, though, right? There's something valuable about pennies, right? I have a kid who's a collector, picks that kind of stuff, stuff up from the ground. A lot of diseases there, but that's okay. Penny saved is penny earned. And they're, they're like these, these mottos that we all kind of get, you know, owing to Benjamin Franklin, poor Richard Zalmanac for sure, but we, we have these mottos, and Paul actually gives two mottos and makes one up. Look at the passage with me in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. That's actually a motto from the first century. 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Not all things promote holiness. They're lawful, I can do them, but they don't promote holiness. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. But that's a model that everyone would know. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things actually promote me and grow me as a Christian. That's what Paul means. And look at his second motto. His second motto is uh, there in verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Doesn't that make sense? The word for stomach there is belly, right? So it's not necessarily um, a, a medical statement. He's just saying that, look, food is meant for like here, your belly. That's where it goes, right? Food's meant for your belly. Your belly is meant to like hold. What do you think it's meant to hold? It's meant to hold food. Paul says there's this relationship between the food and the hollow of your belly that food would then fill that hollowness. It's a motto. And Paul just throws this motto out to describe that there's some appropriateness between uh, food and the hollow in the middle of your torso. But then he makes up a motto. He makes one up. And he says that the body is meant for the Lord. Do you see what he's done? He's taught in such a way that he communicates with them with one motto. He gets them a little bit closer with another motto. And then they're prepared to hear the biblical motto, which is the body is meant for the Lord. Now, if the body is meant for the Lord, he's saying that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And the word that he uses there is pornea, for sexual immorality. He's using a very broad word to describe sexual immorality. He's speaking about unmarried sex. He's speaking about adultery. He's speaking about prostitution, as he'll address later. He's speaking about all manner of sexual immorality, homosexual uh, uh, sexual immorality as well. And he uses that broad term and he says this is not what the body is made for. You get the food stomach thing, that's not, this is not what the body is made for. The body is made for the Lord. And that's the punchline, isn't it? The very end of verse 13. The punchline is that your body is made for the Lord. Now, some of you are here this morning and you are goal-oriented people. You can't be otherwise. You're always thinking a few years down the road, every decision you make now has to do with some, some kind of outcome in the future. Some of you are very goal-oriented. Some of you are not goal-oriented at all. And goal-oriented people drive you insane. Right? So I am preaching to you this morning and I'm actually highlighting our differences that I might cause disunity in the body. It's just an illustration. Some of us are goal-oriented. Some of us are not. But God is very goal-oriented. And here's what I mean by that. When we look at Genesis, we see that God created man and woman for a purpose. Not only for their purpose together as man and woman, but their purpose before him. That they would guard and keep the garden. And in fact, the purpose that God had for Adam and Eve was so intimate that it could be said that God actually gave to Adam and Eve his very image and likeness which he does not do for the creatures. God desired intimacy with man and woman. And if you flip in your Bibles to Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, 
What do we see there? Revelation 21, 3 and 4. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen to me. This is Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just listen to the physicality of this language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jump forward to Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I'm not here to interpret Revelation 22, 4, but imagine that. He can describe us as having a glorified body, having a name written on our foreheads, and we ought to think all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, having been made in His likeness. We're marked with Him. That's how intimate of a relationship He desires to have with us. And I draw your attention to these passages. We can look at another one in Revelation 19, where we actually sit at a table with Jesus in body, We are sitting at a table with Jesus. And then we begin to see what Paul is saying. Paul says that the body is actually meant for the Lord Jesus. You have a body that you might have personal bodily communion with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why you have a body. How does that strike you? That's why you have a body. You have a body that you might have a personal relationship with God, being with Him physically. And in Jesus' in, uh, in resurrection, Paul says that's the first fruit of our own resurrection. That's the purpose of the body. Now you see what Paul is doing. He started talking about physical intimacy, and now he's talking about the constitution of our bodies and those bodies belonging to the Lord. And if you think about it, your head is no longer cocked. You stand up straight and you go, Jesus, I get it. I get it. You own my body, and it belongs to you that it might have fellowship with you for all eternity, that we can sit face to face. The body was meant for Jesus to look at me. The body was meant to have eyes in its sockets that I might look at him. And what this does is is it takes this sexual desire, this physicality, and shoves it to a very dark corner. The body was made for the Lord. That's the first principle. Let me uh, talk about the uh, other two principles a little bit more quickly. Uh, The second principle uh, begins uh, right where this one ends. It begins at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And this is the principle of one flesh. Your bodies are actually members of Christ. Now, I, I think that he's talking about our individual bodies. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, uh, Colossians 1.18 talks about the church body be, having one head, Jesus, and that body that's called the church uh, actually belongs to Jesus. But I think that Paul is talking about individual bodies. 1 Corinthians 12.27 is a good verse to write in your margin uh, right here. Because in that passage, Paul talks about us being individual members. So whatever the number of professing Christians there are here, out of that profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you individually become a member to Jesus' body. 
What that means for you is right before us in verse 17, but let me expound on that. Jesus says that when you belong to His body, it means His mission is your mission. His purposes, His will, His desire, His kingdom mandate, that actually is His and it's also yours. You want to know what your mission is in life. This is it. It's the kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not only just His mission is your mission, but His identity is your identity. Identity is a word we fight over a lot. There was a time when that word identity was not in the press as much as it is now. A person's sexuality is so intimately connected to their identity that we now just assume that that's the case. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that your identity actually belongs to Jesus. Your identity resides not here, but there. But there. The things that God says about Jesus apply to you in faith. And your identity then belongs to Him. I want you to check yourself whenever you think about your identity as belonging to yourself. It's my identity. We all want to self-create. We all want to self-create. We want to make ourselves. This is the sin of making a name for ourselves. But our mission and our identity, according to Paul, actually belong to Jesus because we are members of Him. And if we don't understand that, then we don't get this rapid fire of questions that Paul has for us in this passage. He says, shall I make this member a member of sexual immorality? He says, shall I make this member a member of a prostitute? Shall I make this member a member of pornace, the word for prostitute? This is the noun. We've already seen the verb for sexual immorality. And what Paul is saying is this. Christian, your your mission and your identity reside in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you participate in sexual immorality with your body, what you're actually doing is something that's akin to a conversion. It's something that's very similar to a conversion. You actually are denying that one body of Jesus Christ and you are, you are partnering yourself with a prostitute that you might be one body with her. And that's a, that's a remarkable transaction that's taking place. You're a member that belongs to Jesus. You give everything to Him. But when you practice sexual immorality... Paul doesn't hold back any punches and he says what you're actually doing is you're entering into a transaction, not that the prostitute gets money, you're losing far more than your money. That transaction aspect, when Paul mentions the word prostitute in verse 16, is very important to him. It's a lot like a conversion. You're becoming a member of her and whatever she wants whatever she's doing, whatever her mission is, whatever her identity is, you're actually joining in flesh with her for her mission, her identity. I think that's why Paul is so forceful in verse 16 when he says, do you not know? Do you not know? In the Greek, it stands out boldly. Do you not know? He says, uh, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Do you not know that? 
If uh, we think about that first principle, the principle of resurrection, a word that comes to our mind is goals. God is goal-oriented. He has a purpose for the body. If we think about the principle of one flesh, we think about ignorance. Do you not know this is what you're doing? Isn't it funny how sexual immorality today in this context actually becomes just a little bit of a tangential side issue that doesn't matter all that much? It was very small. It, my sexual immorality was no more was was not nearly as wicked as the sexual immorality of my friends. There's a scale there, and at least I didn't do that. I think that this is often how sins like pornography enter into a man's life in such a way, or a woman's life in such a way that it destroys other relationships around him or around her. It's because it's surely not that bad. And Paul just assumes that we're ignorant and that we think that way. And he says, do you not know? Do you not know? You're actually giving up your membership with the body of Jesus that you might enter into a similar kind of membership with a prostitute. Well, the second principle is a principle of one flesh. The third principle, the final principle before the application, is the principle of indwelling spirit. Now, if you look at verse 18, I think that's where this begins. He says, flee from sexual immorality. That's the first verb that's used as an imperative. He's basically saying, run and hide. Run and hide. It's a very forceful verb. And it's the kind of verb that a man is not likely to want to use. I don't run and hide, right? I don't run and hide. And Paul says you probably should. No, you definitely should. You should run and hide from sexual immorality. What he has already told us thus far has to do with our glorified bodies and has to do with our one flesh relationship with another human being. And now in verse 18, he says, run and hide. Now, uh, just a personal uh, confession here. In my pastoral ministry, I used to uh, really hesitate from saying to people, you know, you should employ these outside techniques on your computer to keep you from going to illicit websites. Um, you should, you know, just try not to worry about avoiding certain... Uh, you know, the magazine aisle at the store because of the pictures of women. You know, I just, I heard those, uh, those techniques and I just felt, you know, that's really a bit silly, isn't it? I mean, it's, just get control of it yourself. Don't employ the techniques. And I just, I'm, I'm in process here, but I'm liking the techniques more and more, particularly looking at verse 18 and Paul saying, run and hide. The temptation of sexual immorality is greater now than I think it ever has been. And maybe, maybe you think, I'm, it's just too, I'm too young to be able to say that. But it's everywhere. The temptation of pornography is everywhere. The temptation of adulterous thoughts is in the hearts of people whom we hold up as the highest Christians. It's so prevalent and we're so desensitized that verse 18 now is just music to my ears. Because Paul says, run and hide. Flee from sexual immorality. If you need help, go to a brother and sister as a process of your fleeing from sexual immorality. Ask for help. Confess this. Share this with others. Because verse 18, on the back of those two principles of the resurrection of the body and the principle of being united in one flesh to another human, verse 18 is a sledgehammer 
on the head. And when Paul says uh, run and hide, he's actually using exactly the same word that shows up in 1 Corinthians 10 for idolatry. Isn't it funny how we can say, you know, you should run and hide from idolatry, but you probably don't need to run and hide from sexual morality. You can get right up to the edge there and just kind of play with that subject, but run and hide from idolatry to be sure. I don't think Paul has that same sensitivity. You run and hide from sexual immorality just as much as you run and hide from idolatry. Um, verse 18, he says that th- um, this sin is a sin that's committed um, uh, against your own body, unlike a sin that's committed outside the body. I-, I don't know what that means. I'd love to know what that means. But, but I don't. I think it may have something to do with the two tables of the commandments. Uh, the first four commandments have to do with your relationship with God, and the last six commandments have to do with your relationship with others. And I wonder if what Paul is saying here is he's saying that uh, sexual immorality is a sin against your body in such a way that whereas idolatry is a, uh, uh, a sin in which you were refusing to worship God, the first four laws of the Ten Commandments. Sexual immorality is a sin against the body in such a way that it clouds up all those other six commandments having to do with your love for your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor if you're practicing sexual immorality with them or if you're doing it in the life of the church. There's something about the body reality of sexual sin that it hurts people you're sitting next to right now even if they don't know about it. Verse 18 is very challenging. I'm I'm not sure uh, how exactly to make sense, but Paul is saying it's not simply just a matter of failing to love your neighbor. There's something greater that's going on. There's, the body here is the body of the church that you are harming in your sexual immorality. But verse 19 ought to be your clarion call, and here's where I'll finish with this principle. He says, you are not your own. You're not your own. Now, maybe you might say, of course, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I want to, I'm okay not being my own, being owned by someone else if I know that that someone else is going to do me right. And then you just ask question after question after question to make sure that that person uh, does good for you. And then you'll be able to say, okay, I'm not my own, I belong to you. But do you think about that when you profess faith in Jesus? Do you know that that's what your profession is stating? You're stating that you are not your own. And what you may struggle to do in your other relationships on earth, making yourself to be owned by someone else, giving yourself to the authority and leadership of someone else, if you say to yourself, I will never do that, I protect number one, you have to give that up at some point. Because your profession is a statement that you actually belong to someone else. And Paul says that you are not your own. You have been bought. You have been purchased. The transaction has been made. And he says, because of that transaction, glorify him, but not alone. I've been bought, therefore I have to glorify God. That's just moralism. I've been bought, now I have to glorify God. But Jesus died on the cross that he might ascend into heaven and he might give to you the gift of his life, that he might give to you the gift of his Holy Spirit so that your job is not simply to be bought by him and then now I have to live as if I am. You're bought by him and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a gift of his work on the cross. 
that you might glorify him. It's the difference between moralism and grace-filled sanctification. You have been bought with a price, but Paul is saying that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit that you might then glorify God. You are not alone in your battle against sexual immorality. Not by a long shot, Paul is saying. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit that through the strength of the Holy Spirit, your fleeing might really be fleeing and might therefore draw you closer to God that you would glorify Him. It's not, I have been bought, therefore work. It's, I have been bought and indwelt. And now I can flee. Here's the application. The application is simply this. Marriage is meant for commitment between one man and one woman. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 is uh, addressed to an unmarried man. And he says that if you are an unmarried man, it is good for you not to have sexual relations with a woman. And the word there is opto. It is good for you not to touch a woman. It is good for you not to cling to a woman. This is the life of singleness. We, t- we spoke at, at depth last week about this. I think the sermon has been uploaded. But this is your life as a single person. You are not to take hold of, to touch, to cling to a woman. And then in verse 2, Paul has a message for married people. He says, a married man becomes a husband of one wife. A, a married woman becomes the wife of one husband. In this passage, Paul thinks divorce is deplorable. They belong together, committed. They, they are so committed that Paul uses legal terminology to describe the relationship that they have. He says that the husband has an obligation to the wife. The wife has an obligation to the husband. I think that the, the Corinthian believers were very ignorant and foolish, and absolutely lost in their sin. But Paul could count on mottos connecting with them, and he could count on legal terminology connecting with them, because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the beginning, is all about legal relationships. And he says, what, you get the law, let's talk law. He says, a husband and a wife have certain obligations, rights. And he says they possess those as the only one. Husband, your wife is the only one that has those obligations and duties to you and to receive from you. Wife, the same is true with your husband. He is the only one, the only one who has an obligation and duty to you and from you. In your thoughts, in your speech, and in your action, this is the only one for you. Paul says in verse, uh, in a verse, I didn't write down the verse. Authority. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This is the relationship that they have. They each have that authority over one another's body, and no one else on earth does. Now, this is what's remarkable about what Paul is saying. He's saying that there's only one that can intervene in this relationship. There's only one that can demand a devotion outside of this husband and wife devotion. And that's why Paul brings up the separation between husband and wife for a season for prayer. 
Jesus is the only one who has that authority to interrupt that relationship. Let, let me tie all of this together. Husbands and wives live together in a committed relationship, sharing the same goal. What is that goal? Well, to both be personally fulfilled, to make enough money to send your kids to a good college, get your kids involved in sports, to have kids, right? Those, those are all goals. That's wrong. The goal of husband, the goal of wife, is the resurrection of their bodies. It's the life everlasting with Jesus Christ. In a weird way, the goal of a husband and wife relationship is a goal of not being married any longer. Doesn't that sound terrible? The goal is to be with your Lord and Savior in heaven, and His demands become your demands. His mission, His identity, it is yours. Husband, your wife does not own your mission or your identity. Wife, your husband does not own your mission or your identity. You are united with the goal of the resurrected life, the glorified body in Christ Jesus. Husband and wife, your sexual immorality that's practiced is a sexual immorality that's very similar to a conversion. Husband, if you think that pornography is not a big deal, ask your wife. What does she think about it? she will disagree with that assessment. The same thing, wife. Ask your husband what he thinks about your uh, shifty eyes, your uh, use of pornography. Ask what he thinks about it. Flirting with another man. Sexual morality is very similar to a conversion. Husband and wife, your goal is resurrection. Husband and wife, sexual immorality is, a, is dangerous to your marriage. And husband and wife, you are never alone, never alone in fleeing from sexual immorality. Because in Jesus Christ, you've not only been purchased, but you've been indwelt. And you're not alone. Well, I want to uh, close us in a prayer. I want to offer this reminder. Uh, there is no such thing as a beautiful marriage without Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a beautiful marriage in God's eyes without Jesus Christ. Husbands and wives, you are called to sanctify one another that you would grow in your sexual purity. And for single people, the same is true for you. You may not like this at all, but you are called to flee sexual immorality. You do not have certain liberties and luxuries simply because you're single. You're not tied down to a husband or a wife. You are tied down in your profession of faith. You do not belong to yourself. You may call yourself single, but you're not. You're married. You do not belong to yourself. Well, let me uh, close us in prayer, and we want to confess faith using the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Father, we uh, ask that your Spirit would uh, enable us to glorify you, even in these dark, uh, hollow aspects of, um, of who we are, that we just would rather be kept secret. We just don't want people to know. There's no place, Father, that you will not enter, that we might be sanctified to glorify you more and more. There's no place you won't enter. And so, Father, we ask that you would, uh, by that Spirit, enable us to open those places to your word, to bring them before you, to flee, 
to cling not to an idol for our own sensual pleasure, but to cling to you in Jesus Christ. By his mercy and by the strength of the spirit that he has given to us, we will grow in our sanctification. Amen.